Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Grace Brown, Harvard Westlake's first learning resource specialist. Having spent the last three years creating a learning center at Harvard Westlake, Grace believes learning differences, or neurodiversity, should be integral in the life of the school and to all instruction. Grace also discusses growing up biracial in Ohio and Michigan. In addition to her schooling at Harvard and Columbia, teaching in inner city Chicago, and then how Harvard Westlake became the fifth independent school at which she has created a center for learning and the challenges therein. These are fascinating issues, and Grace is truly a leader in this field. This is the supporting cast. Grace Brown, welcome to the supporting cast. Thank you. Great to be here. So my first question is this. I guess growing up, I had always heard of learning disabilities was what they were referred to. Um, Someone had dyslexia or another form of a disability. You refer to them as learning differences. I guess my first question is, why do you refer to them now or do we refer to them now as differences? And what does that speak to the larger issue of how we consider learning diversity in our school? Yeah, that's a really good question because I actually use both terms because legally for a student to receive accommodations, they're protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Ah, so disability is still used as a... Yes, absolutely. So the official diagnosis always has to be some sort of disorder or disability Uh because that's legally where it falls. Got it. But then we also use the term learning difference to symbolize the fact that we're really talking about neurodiversity. Mm. And it's not a disability to have a mind that's maybe a little more on the fringe of what's the spectrum of all neurodiversity. And in fact, we know that some of these minds, like a dyslexic mind, is also an incredibly creative mind. It has a lot of athletes have that brain. A lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs have that brain. Mm -hmm. So it's not disabled. It just has a hard time in a really structured, traditional educational setting. And in another setting, it's an advantage. So Hmm. that's where the difference comes, is acknowledging that we're calling it a disability because in certain settings, it becomes a hindrance and that we legally need to classify it as that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the bigger scope of a person's life, it's really, it's just neurodiversity like everything else. And we need people with all these different types of brains to bring the amazing world that we have today. Yeah. It's why I sat down one of the first interviews for the supporting cast was with Janine Jones, yeah. who's our director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You actually regard neurodiversity as another form of that diversity. We tend to think of it as racial and ethnic diversity, religious diversity, uh, sexual orientation. You see it as including this as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that many institutions, including Harvard-Westlake, were quicker to have uh, go co-ed and have racial diversity and honor the LGBTQ plus community before they actually really publicly supported neurodiversity. Yeah, and why is that? Why has this been a lagging movement in that way? You know, I think it really challenges our notions of meritocracy mm-hmm. and it challenges our notions of 
what it is to be intelligent. Yeah. And um, it challenges our notions that certain categories of people are all the same. Like, so, yeah. okay, there's people of different ethnic categories or cultural categories or sexuality or genders. Um, but this kind of blows that up. That if you honor the fact that every human being's brain is unique, the way we all have a separate fingerprint, we all have a different brain. Yeah. It really flies in the face of all the categorization and the social hierarchies that we've created. Yeah. Is there a, a limit, though? I mean, is there, as we think about our admission process, for example, sure. we're judging people on ISEE scores and grades yes. from their sending schools and from interviews and so forth. Um, Obviously, one could argue that the the type of learning that they have doesn't show up as well in that sort of a process, and that means maybe we should tweak that process. So that's one question. But is there a limit outside of which someone may not be able to uh, succeed at Harvard Wesley? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think what's really important to note is that within every population and sort of ability level, there's neurodiversity, but it falls at all these different what we'd call for lack of a better measure, like these IQ, these intellectual uh, abilities. Yeah. So we can only serve students who really are very capable with verbal, you know, the things that really stand out for Harvard Westlake students is their verbal abilities and what we call their verbal IQ is super high. They have to be able to analyze. They have to be able to really get those scores. So we still only can admit students who perform at a certain level and, and, but within that, there is neurodiversity. And so what we look for is a student who can meet those benchmarks or exceed those. Mm-hmm. But maybe they need a little more time or maybe they need because yeah. they process a little slowly, but they can analyze at that high level. That's what we need. We need that intellectual power to be able to really do they have the vocabulary? Yes, but maybe they can't read it in print, but they can do an audiobook and understand the complexity of the language. So mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is mediate the hindrances of those students be able to show their uh, true potential, but they have to have the true potential. And I think that's where the concept of a learning disability and not being intelligent or low IQ, those those are not linked. And in fact, to have a diagnosis of a learning disability, you have to show statistically through testing that you have very high abilities and there's one or two processes that slow you down. Yeah. Well, you mentioned one of them is extended time, and that's right. become a bit of a controversial one because right. sometimes people say, oh, are people, are there families who are requesting extended time for their kids as a way to gain an advantage rather than a way to compensate for uh, a learning difference? How, how would you respond to a parent who says people are gaming the system? Well, I, that is happening, but I don't think it's happening at the rate that we that people think it is and you know and it's all about your process so we as a school require extensive documentation Mm. i'm trained and jen gabriel on the middle school campus is trained to read that documentation to make sure the numbers match up and make sense and that we also make sure that those students are demonstrating something in the classroom that's reflecting what they're claiming in the testing. So we're... So it's, you're not just taking this no. on, on faith or on the word of a parent. Right, exactly. And then making the adjustment. Right. It's not a... Like some people think it's a note. It's not a doctor's <laughs> note. It's right. a 12 to 35 page report with a lot of data in it. And I'm looking at it with 
24 years of experience having read thousands of these and I know what I'm looking for. And if things don't add up, I call testers and there's times where I turn a report down because it either, usually it's the data is correct, but then they will recommend something that the data doesn't support. And that's where, and I'm lucky to have an administration in the school that supports me and saying, I'm sorry, but this doesn't support what you're suggesting as accommodations. But that hardly ever, I would say 1% of reports I flag like that. And I can say right now in the, of the students who are being tested, all of them have been recommended for testing either by a teacher or a dean, at least at the upper school. So I'm not getting surprise reports on my desk from somebody who we didn't have on the radar already. Yeah. So I think we have a good system for that reason. And we have great testers who work with us and who have integrity and I'm not getting reports from people I don't know. Yeah. Um, so we have a good, I think we have a good reputation in the community as being incredibly diligent about this process, but yeah, also we have a lower percentage yes. than our peer schools in terms oh, yeah. of a percentage of students who are, who are getting extended time. Absolutely. And yeah. I'd say culturally, this is not, it's like, we're kind of like, we're kind of low. If you look at all the different diagnoses that we're supporting students, we're really low percentage wise. Yeah. If anything, culturally, this school, students tend to not want to, uh, to, to, to they always feel guilty, like, oh, I don't want, I don't want a handout. I don't want extra. And you have to really. Is that something you have to help them overcome? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if there's anything that our school culturally is known for, it's not that kids are trying to get the easy way out. It's, it's like they're almost, <laughs> they look for punishment where they don't need it. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I, I mean, I also would say, if you look at the scandal, like the Operation Varsity Blues, I mean, the yeah. way they did better is someone else took the test for them. Like, uh, you can give yeah. me 100 hours to take an AP Chem test, and I'm going to fail it. Like, extended <laughs> time only helps if you know kind of what you're doing. What you're doing. You just need a little extra time. <laughs> right. So the whole idea of, like, this kid had extended time, and now they got into Harvard. Yeah. But it wasn't for that. They'd be in community college and not. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. And um, But I think it speaks to, the, again, going back to the neurodiversity point. I mean, mm -hmm. there are people who say, well, you know, when my child's sick, they need time. Or what happens when. And that's actually true. I think it speaks to the fact that we have a very rigid education system yeah. that doesn't honor the fact that different people on different moments, our brains work differently and we yeah. have such rigidity. And so I think instead of ex tacking extended time, we really need to look at the fact that, yes, like we can provide accommodations for the extremes because we can document that. But there's yeah. all these gradations in the middle that really could benefit from different ways of being assessed and different right. ways it's of showing their knowledge. And that's absolutely true. And that's where our responsibility as educators comes in. And so I wish the conversation was less about the few people who might be cheating and more about all the people that could benefit if we could broaden our understanding of learning. And assessment. And assessment. Yeah, right. Yeah. You have have really started a program in kind of learning diversity at Harvard-Westlake. You've started these programs at other schools, which we'll get to. What do you love about this work? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's really a, it's a calling. It's a vocation. Like, I just fell in love with it. And I, I, you know, I love, you know, I love being able to help something so simple as extra time can take a student from barely making it to becoming an honor roll student. And just, and more than the extended time, but getting the testing and knowing, oh, I'm dyslexic. That explains right. why. And not, not, not this sort of self-loathing or yes. self-criticism, but to know, oh, I understand yeah. now why I 
am challenged more in this area. Exactly. And yeah. parents are like, oh, man, I was yelling at my kid all the time <laughs> thinking they were lazy. And really, it was this thing. And there's a moment where, you know, there's tears a lot of times of yeah. guilt or wish I had thought to diagnose them sooner, especially our student body, because they I mean, we have kids who are 17 getting diagnosed with dyslexia who compensated for 11 years of schooling Wow! and literally are dyslexic and can't really read but have amazing memories and just somehow can guess what a word's supposed to be and just incredible, you know, and just, and people, you know, parents feel terrible that they didn't see it before, but they were just so bright and they compensated for so long until their curriculum just caught up with them and they couldn't do that anymore. So it's just, um, I mean, it's counter intuitive but when someone does get diagnosed even if we use the term disorder or disability mm-hmm. to know that it wasn't their fault there's something going on and and now they know how to navigate it yeah it's so empowering and it just it really changes lives it's just you watch people think you know and it's, it's such a pivotal age for students and to watch them go from thinking maybe i'm not good enough to yeah. realizing the world is infinitely possible for them. They can achieve everything now that they know how to navigate their own neurology. Yeah. And there's nothing better than that. And then to get teachers and parents excited about that too and just change the culture and the way we think about that. It's just, yeah, I, I, you can tell I'm jazzed. Like, yeah. I just love it. I love what I do because it, it, it gets, it's a paradigm shift that is just better for everybody. Yeah. And we're, uh, we're still at the beginning of that paradigm shift. Yes. Oh, yeah, say, yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Where, where do we still... What more do we still need to do in this area? I think bringing you here and having folks on both campuses that can work with students in this way is a huge step, having someone who's been here a long time. But there's still a long ways to go, right? Yes. Oh, yes. yes. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) We're done, right? It's been two and a half years. No problem. Uh, You know, we have a lot of education to go. You know, faculty, you know, right now, especially at the upper school, the professional development is being used to get ready for the block schedule. Right, and how do you schedule. T- yeah. And how do you teach in that time? But once that settles out... We need some work in this area We need well. some work in this area for sure. Um, and there's a lot there. And it will actually... And, and, and what's important about it is it's really about how brains learn. And, and that's true for everybody. Yeah. So when you understand this area, you just become a better teacher. And it's it's interesting because as educators, most people are trained in their subject and they're kind of trained in how you deliver information. But they're not trained in how does someone receive it. Oh, that's really interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a doctor, like a podiatrist who knows everything about the foot and doesn't know anything about the circulation system. You know, like it's like that's important. Yeah, Even if right. you're not a heart surgeon, you need to know how that works. And so this work once people really begin to understand that, then they can cater their lectures. They understand certain sort of yeah. teaching techniques that are promoted. They understand why it's important, and then they can make it theirs and marry it to their curriculum, which they're experts in. Right. So, Grace, now I want to know about you. Okay. <laughs> uh, just the way you get to know about your students. Where did you grow up? I grew up for the first 12 years of my life in rural Ohio, huh. little Leroy Township, outside uh-huh. northeast of Cleveland. And then at 12, I moved to uh, Portage, Michigan, which is the suburb of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Got it. And what caused the move from Ohio to Michigan? Uh, my father worked uh, for a uh, Caterpillar and was laid off because it was around that time where they were... Those the tractors? The case? tractors, yeah, yeah. He was an engineer, designed an engineer for them. And hmm. They were sh- shipping a lot of their work overseas and... So and then he so he ended up getting a job in aerospace design 
Oh, Michigan. Up in Michigan. Yeah. I guess this is a, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but is your family Ohio State or Michigan fans? You know, I have a big Ohio State sweatshirt. Oh, yeah, I, okay. I, but I have to say I was a bit of a traitor during my middle school year and high school years, and I did have a lot of Wolverine gear. Got it. But I've come back to the Buckeyes. You come back to the Buckeyes. Yeah. By the way, also Janine Jones, a huge Ohio State okay, Buckeye right, fan. So okay. you guys are aligned there yes. uh, as well. Um, so you went to high school then in... Uh, Michigan. Michigan. Yep. Yeah. And did you go to public school or independent school? Well, I had gone to a really tough, rigorous elementary school in Ohio. Mm. And it was like the Harvard Westlake of elementary schools. Like kids would drop out of second grade, which, because it was too hard. And I'm like, I look back. <laughs> Seems extreme. Right. I'm like, well, what are you doing in second grade? But nobody, I, anyway. So then I went from that to public school. It was a good public school, but it was a huge culture shock. It's the first time I met people who weren't planning to go to college. I thought it was required, like yeah, the rest of the school. That's what everybody does. Yeah. yeah. So that was, but it, so I did go to public school for high school. Yeah. Oh, got it. Were there, and what was your high school called? Yeah. Portage Central High School. Portage Central. The Were Mustangs. there teachers at Portage Central that you recall that influenced you? Yeah, I mean, my debate coach, that she was pivotal mm. because... What was uh, her name? Uh, Mrs. Hobb. Okay. Yeah, she was, you know, debate was my life because I kind of did miss the intellectual challenge in a way from the uh, my other schooling. Mm. So debate was where I got that. Mm. And she was just devoted. Like, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but I mean, she would drive us to tournaments and, you know, she was on the weekends and all night long practicing with us and every day for class. And I look back at that level of commitment. And she was old, like she was older. So this is toward the ends of her career, and she was still with us, and just yeah. So I really, yeah, she, I really appreciated her. Yeah. And so then from there, you go to college, and you went to Harvard. I went to Harvard. Right? Yeah. I was actually recruited. They sent me an email. Or they sent me a letters before emails, and said, "Please apply. We're going to send you an application for debate." No. Um. So I had. So I'm biracial, and I had won for Michigan. You know the. When you take the PSAT and yeah. you have all those national merit scholarships that you can win, I had won one of those. Oh, wow. And didn't realize, like, you got to understand, this was like public school Michigan. There were no, you know, SAT prep classes. Like, yeah. there was nothing. There was just, I took the PSAT, didn't know it was anything. Yeah. And got that. But education was super, like, so I'm, I'm coming from this biracial family. My father's African-American and British, mm -hmm. and my mom's. Uh, German and Romanian Jew. Mm -hmm. And my, so my paternal grandfather, African American, met my wealthy white British grandmother while he was getting his PhD at the London School of Economics in the 1930s. Wow. And she was going, and he had graduated from Howard and then decided to get his doctorate in England. And she was going to the University of London, which as a woman in the 1930s was kind of unusual. Yeah. They met, got married, and had my father in England. Uh, but all my relatives on my father's side since the emancipation had graduated from college. The first wow. one in 1891. So oh that's not a story you hear about African-Americans, but yeah. that's one. Um, that was my lineage. And then my mother's family, very similarly, um, her mother had been an orphan. And then her father had had to drop out of school in eighth grade to support the family, but went back to become a CPA. And then she and her brother went to college. So education was super important. Wow, yeah. And not just any education, but like the best school possible because not to be elitist, 
but for survival. Like, mm. you know, you, and my dad would say, you're black, you're female. You're going to have to work twice as hard mm. and expect half as much. Yeah. You're going to have to have double the credentials to just get through the door. Mm. So when you say to go to Harvard, like, it makes you sound like a, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a stuck-up snob. But for my family, that was just, we were raised that you have to get into the best programs possible because that's how you have a chance. Got it's it. not to be better than. It's just to try to be equal. You've also made the point that going to Harvard has helped in the line of work that you do in, in lending you legitimacy, I guess. Is that yeah. part of it? That's absolutely true. Yeah. Because yeah. especially because I've sort of created a niche for myself where I go into independent schools right. that never had a learning specialist before. Yes. Like Harvard Westlake. Like Harvard Westlake. This is the fifth time I've done that. Yeah. And there's a reason why they didn't have one before. And that's kind of like they don't really want to embrace this. You know, mm. we're we don't want the like we're we're this school for a reason. Mm-hmm. Why are we why are we you know, and they think we're gonna bring in students as opposed to just acknowledge and support the ones that are already here. Right. And they don't think there's gonna be much technical to it and they're like, Oh, you teach special ed, you must be special ed. So to have mm. I you know, because I then I did my grad work at Columbia, to have two Ivy League degrees and come in as the learning specialist, it, it challenges that idea that this is going to dumb down, you know, you're going to dumb down our school, you're going to dumb down our curriculum. And by the time I'm done, they realize that what I'm really trying to do is raise the bar. Right. Yeah. Uh, your graduate work was in, in what at Columbia? At Learning, learning Disabilities. So I went learning to Teacher's College, Columbia. Got it. Yeah. And were there professors either at Harvard or Columbia that influenced you in this regard? I had one professor, Professor Minton, at Harvard. Uh, Harvard was hard for me because mm. it was super competitive. Mm-hmm. It was also a huge culture change coming from the Midwest to the East Coast. Yeah, and and I wasn't quite sure why I was there because intellectually I was there, but I wasn't competitive. I wasn't. Mm. I think because of my time, especially at, at, at in my high school, I wasn't cutthroat so yeah i remember the first time i was supposed to get a book out of the reserve readings the pages that i needed had been ripped out someone would rip out the pages so no one else could read them yeah that was the culture there yeah so that was just i didn't have any and i really was a person who wanted to help people i mean my dream martin luther king jr is my hero right so that's not really aligned with who i am and what i wanted to be but it's you know the one of the best schools in the country and you're lucky to be there. And mm-hmm. so, you're, you know, I stuck it out, but it didn't really uh, feed my soul in any way. Yeah. And, or it did, but not in as many ways as I think I needed. Mm-hmm. And so Professor Minton was someone who just got that mm-hmm. and was just kind. He knew that it was hard for us, those of us who are a little more yeah, looking softer. And what subject did he he teach? was a classics professor. So I majored in classical Greek and fine arts, uh-huh. like, like you do. <laughs> <laughs> practical. <laughs> practical, yeah. Well, I thought I was going to go to law school, and they're like, yeah. you can do anything and be interesting. Yeah. And uh, so he was one of my classics professors and an advisor to me. And just he just acknowledged that it was hard. I mean, yeah. that was what was so great about him is he just acknowledged that it was hard. Yeah. And so what you said you were thinking of going to law school, what made the switch in your mind from I'm thinking about law school to I want to go in and learn about Learning differences and help kids. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I thought I was going to go to law school because I had done debate and I liked to, yeah. you know, talk and argue Clearly. and research. And uh, 
one of my roommates my junior year was dating a guy from the law school. And so he and his friends would come for dinner every once in a while. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa, these are not my people. <laughs> like, it was, this is, this is not, this is not. And, and they were also really honest. They said, because I, of course, if I want to go to law school, I want to go to the best law school, right? And yeah. they, they and I, but I was going to do like civil rights law or something. They sure. like, you're not coming out of here with $100,000 in loans and doing anything, but. You big know, firm law. Big firm law. Yeah. Yeah. So right. you're not doing that. And, and, and this is what this culture is like. And so I just thought, oh, yeah. So not, not law school. Yeah. Not, Got a, it. not a lawyer. Got it. But then why learning differences? So I actually, after I graduated from Harvard, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. So I went home and became a temp secretary in Kalamazoo, Michigan, like mm. you do after graduating from Harvard. <laughs> And, uh, and then I really read a lot of like, Joseph Campbell and What Color Is Your Parachute? And just, yeah. you know, I had this, you know, it's my first kind of crisis. Mm. And um, like, what I, am I going to do with my life? Yeah. What am I going to do with my life? And I, uh, I realized it took a long time, but I realized, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I was I had a, a younger brother who's seven years, my junior I taught him to read. I taught him colors. Like I'd love, I'd babysat my whole life. When I was in high school, I started the peer tutoring program and ran it myself because that was just, I loved tutoring. Yeah. And all through college, I had been tutoring. I even, my senior year, I taught a class at the American Red Cross for adults who wanted to become American citizens. And they had to take the citizenship exam, which is American mm. history. Yeah. So I taught American history to them. And I remember I didn't want to go to the Harvard graduation because I just had not loved that experience. And yeah. my father's like, I paid for this. We're going. You know? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. But the day after that was the citizenship exam. And I was allowed to be there while my students took the actual exam. Wow. And that was more exciting to me than my own college graduation. And I told my family, like, okay, if you're coming out, you got to stay an extra day because we got it. So the citizenship graduation for the kids that you tutored was more important to you than your own oh, yeah. Harvard graduation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, and, and they were adults, so they were like 10, 20 years older than I was. And yeah. I was so proud of them and they were taking their tests. Wow. And that was way more exciting to me than my own Harvard graduation by a factor of a million. So, uh, yeah, so I, you know, but it never, but I had been so trained lawyer, doctor, MBA, lawyer, doctor, MBA, because yeah. you got to make money, you got to survive. Like I'm in that survival yep. mindset of immigrant, sort of immigrant, yeah. African-American family. Like mm -hmm. you don't get the option of choosing a career that doesn't pay anything and isn't, yeah. and isn't socially, uh, highly regarded, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just realized like my soul just wasn't going to let me do anything else. So then I applied. I, so I contacted the Harvard Career Department and or career office and they put me in touch with these headhunter agencies and they but I have this degree in classical Greek and fine arts which transfers to nothing in terms of teaching yeah. in a secondary or uh, level so there was one school for kids with learning disabilities that a week into the school year realized they needed two more people to do the one-on-one -on -one support ah. and something I'd written in my personal statement, I had stated something about how I can tell where a student's getting stuck and I can tell if they're more visual or auditory, not knowing that that was a thing. I just sort of intuitively already knew that. And so they picked up on that and they asked me to come out and start working there. And it was a college prep boarding school for kids with learning disabilities. Hmm. And I fell in love with it. Huh. Yeah. And so that was the key. That was it. Yeah. yeah. It found me or I found it. But yeah. yeah. And then I did three years there and then went to grad school and got my master's. Yeah. Got it. Um, and the master's experience was a good one. And you felt like you were then on your way. You were with your people. I was with my people. Yeah. yeah that's a really good point. I loved Columbia and I loved Teachers College and I loved my 
yeah, I love my professors. I loved my uh, my peers. We it was great. Yeah, it was perfect. Were there any teachers there? Yeah, I think Dr. Reed, I believe she was the head of the department and she just was so encouraging and she really helped me out because I had like a lot of the people in the program were coming straight out of undergrad and they were just continuing the college experience yeah. and it was supposed to be 15 months and I said, "Look, I got to get back to work. Like I can yeah. take a year off and pay for tuition for one yeah. year, but I can't do 15 months." So she really helped me cons- like double up on classes and consolidate and get it done in 12 so that I could actually do it. And then, and I just had a great experience and, you know, she was always like, hey, if you want to come back for the doctoral program, let us know because, mm-hmm. you know, it was so fun, but yeah, I wasn't interested. And so where from there after graduation? So then I thought I was going to save the world. So, <laughs> I, you know, I had it. So I went to uh, the, one of the lowest rated schools in the Chicago public school system wow. as a special ed teacher and Harper High School. How was that? I got my butt kicked. Hmm. Yeah, because what they teach you in grad school is for like upper class, like middle class kids with social skills. Yeah. And yeah. And you were not prepared for, for I that. was not at all. And it was block schedule. It was 90 minutes. Hmm. And, you know, everything's double. So you're supposed to have eight kids, but you really got 16 special ed, ed kids. And um, But I learned how to teach hmm. because you can't just talk. They can't sit still. So you really had to learn how to make it student-centered, how to do all your prep work ahead of time, how mm-hmm. to switch activities. Yeah, just how to control. And it was a lot of behavior management. So at yeah. first, like they're breaking into fights and you'd have to call <laughs> the security guards who were literally police officers and they come in and break it up. Yeah, It was just really exhausting and defeating. I've never really failed at something like I failed at that for about the first five months. Hmm. How did you get better? What happened after five months? I kind of finally figured it out. And I have to say, like, my colleagues there, uh, it was uh, primarily an African-American school, and most of my colleagues were African-American. And they just kind of, at first, they they had bets that I was going to quit within a month. They Mm. just saw me. They knew. (laughs) They knew I was not ready. Yeah. And then I didn't give up. I just wouldn't quit. And I wouldn't die. And so they just were like, okay, we're going to help you now. So they're they're like, you keep, I came in in really nice clothes. They're like, you're dressed to kill, but you need to dress to kill. So I came in with like combat boots. Like I really just changed everything (laughs) about me. And I I learned how to own my world. And, you know, something that I learned is that, you know, they, the the kids really didn't, I learned a lot about what we learn and how we learn it. So, so much of what we learn is based on what we observe in our house. Mm. And so when you have I didn't realize that watching my father get up every morning and go to work yeah. teaches me something. Sure. Like I right. see delayed gratification. I see things that these kids don't see. They also, these were the good, a lot of these kids were actually the good kids. They weren't the gangbangers, which means they had to run home and lock themselves in their house and never come out so that mm-hmm. they wouldn't be shot because, you know, it was constant killing. Constant living in fear. Living in fear. But yeah. they also, so think about the social mediation you learn when you're playing kickball or some game in the yard and someone did you wrong and you got to mediate that. And you learn how to do that when you're a kid who gets to play with other people. Yeah. You learn how to make your own rules. You learn how to negotiate and, and, and get over arguments. But if you're 16 years old and all you've done is run home and lock yourself in the house and and you may or may not have a parent who's there and stable um you don't learn a lot of these really basic social skills so here i was grad school was all about group work mm. and so i put them in groups they start fighting they start Ugh. slugging each other because they don't they haven't learned the other skills yeah and so that's what i so i had to put them in rows and had to be really authoritative 
which is against everything I'd been taught and everything I believed of myself. But I realized, you know, that's an ego trip. Yeah. My job as teacher is to show up and be who those kids need me to be right now so yeah. they can have the safest and best learning experience. And that was to put them in rows and keep them safe. And that's the whole thing. They felt safe that way because it's sort of like I was the main gang leader and I owned that room. I was dominant. Yeah. And when you're living in that much fear, you actually need that. You need the structure. You need you, the structure. You, yeah. And that is the most compassionate and kind thing you can do. So I had to get over myself Interesting. to be able to do that. And then by the end of the year, I taught them. So by the end, we did group work. Yeah. By the end, we did projects. By the end, they were we, really learning things. Yeah. They could do that. And, they, you know, but I couldn't just expect them to be able to do that because they hadn't been taught those skills. But there's all these array of social skills and nuances and soft skills that are taught in certain types of households that aren't taught to other kids that they could learn yeah. if someone would teach it to them. Yeah. Yeah. So where from there? So after that, I, I went up to Lake Forest Academy which is just north of Chicago. And that's and, an independent school. And that's an independent school, boarding school. Got it. Boarding so day school. totally different environment. Yeah, it was yeah. hilarious. It's built on the Armour, what used to be the Armour Mansion. So the Armour Mansion is like their main building. So every morning they have like, it's this gorgeous marble room, you know, with the high French doors that overlook this sculpted garden that they keep up because they do weddings and things out mm. there. And every morning you'd get your tea and coffee and danishes. <laughs> <laughs> in this marble hall wow. looking out at the formal gardens. So a little bit different than a little tad, Chicago public just schools. Just a tad, right? Yeah. You can leave your computer anywhere and nothing's going to happen to yeah. it. Um, yeah, so that's where I went next. Got it. And was it to set up uh, similar to what you've done at, at Harvard Westlake? Yeah, so it was. It was. They actually, it was a kind of a multi-year plan. So the first year I was hired to be a math teacher because oh, okay. I also taught math. Hmm. And uh, with the understanding that the second year I would become their first learning specialist. And Got so it. that's what I did. Got it. Yeah. And was that a good experience in terms of the first time yeah. doing this? Because you, you would then replicate it a few additional times. Yeah. Uh, what did that teach you, setting it up for the first time? Yeah. I mean, it was a good experience. I definitely didn't know how to negotiate. So I ended up in like this little room in like this basement that like flooded. I didn't have a budget. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was only like quarter time learning specialist and three quarters time math teacher, which really that doesn't actually yeah. play out that way. Yeah. But it was great. You know, I was young and I got to create my own program. Yeah. And so it felt entrepreneurial. It felt entrepreneurial and creative and fun. And and, you, and again, the, and the teachers were really open. So I got to do a lot of professional development and kind of just start that conversation. So that was it. great. Yeah. Great. And so then you have since then set up similar programs at, at, Three other schools before Harvard Westlake? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. What were the three? I set schools? up one at uh, Pace Academy in Atlanta. I set up one at uh, Fountain Valley School in Colorado Springs. And I set up one at Chadwick International in Songdo, South Korea. Wow. Yeah. And so was that where you were immediately previous to Harvard Westlake or no? No, no. So I was actually at Miss Porter's for ah. a brief stint in Connecticut, um, working not as a head of, but part as a, learn as a math learning specialist there got it there yeah, yeah. okay and w those are very different places yeah. in different parts of the country yeah. and what have you enjoyed about working in all of these i mean now it's been independent schools right but on all of these different types of places different cultures different kids different parts of the country and the world uh what has that meant to you i love it because what i'm trying to do is understand this to the level of neurology which means everything I do should work 
on any person regardless of cultural background, right? Uh So if I understand this at the level of the brain and what it is to be human, Uh then I should be able to get the same results Uh in Georgia as I get in Colorado as I do in South Korea. Like, Mm. it should be the same. I should... Have you found that? Yeah, I did. Wow. Yeah, that was what was exciting, was South Korea. There's something fundamentally true. (laughs) There's something fundamentally true about human beings. And if I had this right... And what was great about the South Korea school is 90-some percent of those kids had never lived outside South Korea. They spoke English, but they were Korean. Mm. And so... It, I wasn't relying on cultural anything. Sure. And that we were getting the same results. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that was exciting. That was yeah. a, a really cool moment. Yeah. And so then you get a call, I guess, while you're at Miss Porter's, I suppose, about Harvard Westlake. Mm-hmm. And what was it that drew you to this community? Or was it a conversation with Rick Commons? Or uh, what did you know about Harvard Westlake? Kind of how did that come about? Well, I knew about Harvard Westlake because. Uh, at Harvard, there were students who had, who were there. Right. And actually, my I, it must have been like the year of the merger or something because I think it was called Harvard Westlake when yeah. I met people there. But it was the early nineties. But um, so I knew about it. I knew it was a prestigious school. Mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be a challenge, mm-hmm. really, to be quite honest. And why? Because when you have a school that's successful, yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah. So I mean, who's who's you know? Then when I got here, it was ranked number two in the country, and right. you're like, hey, I got something you need. Yeah. I think we, you know, that's a hard sell. Yeah. And so that's exciting for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. But there had to have been some people who, I mean, you're, you're here for a reason. Yes. And even though there's maybe some resistance broadly, there were clearly people who were saying, we, we need this on our campus. And, and what was it that, if that was the case, which yeah. I assume it was. Yeah. What was the thing that they said that we needed? Yeah, it was John Wimbish and Liz Resnick were the two people uh-huh. who were really onboarded me. I ha- I didn't re- meet Rick until after. And what what did they say? What was their what was their pitch to you about the work you would do here? I mean, I'm very now that I've done this a few times, I'm very clear sort of in my terms of what I'm like Got what it. the investment is I need from yeah. the school and and what my role is going to be. And I'm very clear that I will be agitating and I will be speaking <laughs> like very, you know, I will be, you know, clearing a space for this conversation and I need resources and I need a commitment and um, it will make people uncomfortable and they all were ready for that. What's an example of, of something that makes people uncomfortable? What's, uh, you don't have to use a specific sure, student, but sure. what's something that you would ask for or... Uh, um, I mean, certainly you need personnel and you need space and resources, right, and that right, space right. has been created right. for you, I know, now at the upper yeah, school. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, what's something that someone who's been here for a long time, which many yeah. of our administrators have, right? Uh, what's something that would make us uncomfortable? I mean, I think when you challenge people's teaching practices and uh, say that they have to be more inclusive, that you can't just teach to the student who gets your style, mm-hmm. you actually need to, again understand how different brains receive information and teach in a manner that reaches a broader neurological audience. Got it. And that's hard for people, especially probably people who've been teaching for a long time and who have students who who love them and they're beloved. And and now you're saying, oh, there might be students at the edges of your classroom who aren't receiving the same message right. in the same right. way. Right, who intellectually are just as capable, but right. because of the way the information is being delivered, because of the way they're being asked to uh, respond to it, they might need a little more. 
they might need a little extra. Are, are a little different. Yeah. Yeah. And with the change in the schedule now at the upper school, mm-hmm. you mentioned there's a lot of professional development happening around mm-hmm. people changing. Does that offer us an opportunity or do you feel like it's distracting people a little bit from this, uh, the work that you're having people do? I think they're aligned, quite frankly. Oh, Because okay. if you're Great. looking at 75 minutes, yeah. God help us if you're going to lecture for 75 minutes, right? <laughs> like, please don't. Please yeah. don't do that to children. Yeah. So it's forcing people to break out of right. their routine. Right. So, And then if you're going to break out, but you still want to be effective and you still want to cover a lot of curriculum, the ways to understand how to do that are totally linked to what I'm talking about in wow. terms of understanding how people learn. Yeah. And so how do you do it? in a different manner, in a more concise manner, in a way that's maybe even faster for students to um, synthesize and incorporate. So this is sort of the last question before we get to some, some personal items. Sure. Um, are we, by being so inclusive of learning diversity, are we creating a false sense of reality here that when students go and graduate from Harvard-Westlake and go to university or go out into the working world where there aren't accommodations mm. made for extended time, where there aren't accommodations world. made yes. for, I'm sorry, I can't uh, do this project, boss. I have a learning difference. Uh, at Harvard-Westlake, that might mean something. And in, in many industries, it might not. Yeah. How do you think about that challenge? I don't know anyone who works at a job or your boss comes in, gives you a piece of paper and says, complete this in 45 minutes, put it back on my desk, right? And <laughs> that's, that's true. Right, that's and true. that's literally the only situation where a kid gets an accommodation. Got so if it. you're working on a project, if you're doing a homework assignment, if you're doing a reading, mm-hmm. you have to get that done at the same time as everybody else. Got it. So accommodations are only for timed in-class assessments. Okay. So our students, therefore, are better trained if you talk to the kids with learning disabilities and Mm. ADHD, they'll tell you that they're amazing at time management. They're even better Mm. than their peers who don't have those challenges because they had to learn actual skills and strategies to overcome that. Got it. So if anything, I'd go, I'd bet on those kids because they know they have a, they have a plan and a strategy. And they know themselves better. And they'd be able, ideally, in the right type of work environment, just Mm -hmm. like the right type of school environment, they would be able to have, they'd be able to communicate with their supervisor and go, you know, the best way I learn is this way and the best way. Right. Um, I mean, maybe that's, that's the ideal scenario where you have that kind of communication and relationship with your supervisor or your company. But Maybe that's something we should all aspire to. Well, and they're right. pretty adaptable. I mean, most yeah. of them are not going to their teachers right now going, hey, Mr. Dr. So-and-so, I really would learn better if you could just. No one's saying that no, at Harvard but, Westlake but Upper might, School. But, but, but they, have, they have you they have they me. have your colleagues right. who are agitating on their behalf. Yes. Uh, advocating. Right? Yes. Um, Sorry, advocating. <laughs> you, you said agitating. I know. I know but we're going to uh, say advocating. But they, but they yes. won't have that necessarily at the company where yeah. they work. But to be honest, though, I really don't have to do much. They okay. really know themselves well enough that they adjust. And yeah. if they do get to a point where it is a rub, then yeah, they might have to have their conversation or they might have to look. But I think they're going to be they also kind of are going to choose careers that work for them. That's true. Like now that they know what works for them, there's certain kids who are like, yeah, you may not want to be a reporter on a deadline. Yeah. And they're like, we got that. Like, don't plan to do that. Right. You know, our kids with the right. visual impairments are not going to be architects. <laughs> yeah. They got, they, they know. So they're going to set themselves up Which for Which is success. important too. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I mean. Understanding yourself. Yeah, know yeah. yourself. And so I think they're going to have good career choices and mm-hmm. that should help with that. 
But you know what? I mean, I've chosen jobs that for some reason the culture wasn't quite conducive to sure. me either. So I think we all do that as yes, human beings. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And then you have to, and, and learning from, you know, that, that helps you learn about, that helps anyone learn about themselves. Uh, and to be honest, I mean, what would be great is, you know, it's not like Harvard Westlake is inclusive of neurodiversity. It's in, everywhere. You can't avoid it. It's not like we looked for it. It's yeah. if you have people, you have neurodiversity. Right. So it'd be great if companies and corporations also embrace this. Yeah, because you're going to get more out of your workers. Yeah. You know, and I have, it's been interesting. The one thing I'll say about Harvard Westlake parents is I've had a couple of parents, you know, who work in corporate mm. world who are like, this might be good information for yeah. us to know about our customers and yes. to know about our employees so that if we understand brain functioning, we'd have better offices. And I was like, yes, yeah. they're, they're kind of the first parent body to ever come up to me and say, wow, this could be useful. But I yeah. Even is it probably an investment uh, yeah. <laughs> opportunity. Yeah. Maybe, right. Because right. I mean, yeah. it's the same thing at the school level. Like, yeah. Wouldn't it be great if you understood the neurodiversity of your employees? Because it's there. Yeah. That you can't help but have it because everybody's brain is different. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a few um, questions okay. kind of to, to finish up. Sure. And uh, there are kind of three standard questions. Uh, relating to Los Angeles, uh, and we're known for our movies, our food, and our uh, climate. So first, yes. what is Grace Brown's favorite movie? Oh, wow. There's a there's a South Korean film called, um, I think it's called Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. Hmm. That's just one of the most beautiful movies i've ever watched i've never heard of it but why why that film it's you know it's it takes it takes place in it's this isolated monastery it's not even a monastery it's like a home that's mm. just a big meditation room in the middle of a lake mm. and it's a solitary monk and then this boy get little baby boy gets dropped off with him and so it's Ooh. the cycle of this boy's life and and it's it has this Buddhist flair, and I, I, you know, I'm a, I was, I lived in a Buddhist monastery for a while, and so I, Buddhism's wow. my thing. But it has this cycle of this boy becomes a man, and then, and just it comes full circles, uh -huh. hence the, the, uh, the reference yeah. to the season, and it's right. just, it's such a testament to what it is to be human, huh. and it just, it just, I, it's, I, it's beautiful. Did you watch it while you? Uh, lived in and worked at a school in Korea, or no? This was long before. This, this was long, was long before. before I even knew I'd ever end up in Korea. Yeah, it's it's Got weird it. that it is. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it was just a gorgeous film, and yeah, and then I ended up being in Korea like eight years later. Yeah, wow, randomly. Um, what is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Or your favorite food? Oh my gosh, I love uh, like Korean Mexican fusion. Yeah. What's it called? The Kogi truck? Yeah. Yes. That, that, that is just my favorite. And there's so much of it in LA and it just makes me happy. Yeah. yeah. And there's the parent at Harvard Westlake who created it. Yeah. All. Yeah. Um, Roy Choi. That's his name. So it's, yeah. it's sort of your kimchi tacos and stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. Because when I was in Korea, that was, I loved Korean barbecue and then I loved that. And then in LA, it's, it's, you got the more, uh, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's yeah. my favorite. Um, Third, what is your favorite place in Los Angeles? Um, gosh, the beach at Santa Monica. Hmm. I try to get there as often as possible. Really? Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Which part? Which part of Santa Monica? I go to the one because I'm such a newbie. You know, <laughs> I by the pier kind of. Now further down where there's that the restaurant. Uh, I forget uh -oh. the name of the place, but there's like two hour parking there. Okay. And I pull my car in and I run and I just jump in the water. Yeah. 
sometimes it's the only one in the water. There's one time I was the only person in the water, and this guy on a paddleboard goes by, and he's like, you must be from Canada, because it was so cold. I was like, <laughs> Michigan? He's like, same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's any, because I, I love water, and I've never lived near the ocean, ocean. so I just can't You want to take enough. advantage. Yeah. Yeah, got it. So um, lastly, you have probably worked and interacted with a lot of parents. Yes. Uh, over your many schools around the country, internationally, you um, obviously you work with kids, but and, and there's the stereotype of the, the crazy independent school parent, which I'm sure you have stories uh, in that regard as well. But on, on the flip side, what are the qualities of the really great parents with whom you've worked, where you're working with their child and you kind of... Mm leave that conversation going, wow, that is, that's someone who is really supportive of the work I'm doing and supportive of their child. Yeah. Wow. And I would say at the end of the day, that's 99% of the parents that I work with, you know, are the good ones. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's great. You hear that everybody, you hear that yeah. people who criticize kind of modern day yeah, parenting. I, and I mean, and that's 99%. I would say that's 99%. And I think and that doesn't mean they're perfect, but what I would a a good parent is um, courageous enough to see the truth mm. and to have their heart broken if it needs to be. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by heartbroken? Because sometimes what you're seeing isn't what you want to see for your child, mm. and I think especially independent school parents, there's a lot of them are very successful. Yeah, and they thought. You know, we have all the resources, so my child's life's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. And or, or if they don't have resources, they've got their child into this great school, and now their child's going to be better than you know the, the next generation, and and then life happens. Yeah. And uh, and in, especially in the, in the work that I do, then you're talking about you know testing and learning disabilities and learning disorders and and names and things that seem scary and 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 children whose profile isn't necessarily going to mean that it's going to be easy sailing yeah and uh and that's hard and that's scary and the parents who are willing to trust me and trust the process and to show up even when it's scary and even when it's hard and then to trust their child right that then the day your kid's going to be okay yeah. If your child leaves that about themselves mm. and has the, the supports that they need. And we at Harvard Westlake can make sure they have the supports that they need. So um, the parent who's willing to be vulnerable and to go through that and yeah. then find hope and faith at the other side. Yeah. It's a scary thing to watch them do that. It's really impressive. Like that's part of what I love about my job is yeah. seeing parents be able to make that journey. And I just ran into a parent right now in the parking lot who has a senior. and. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just celebrating how well he's doing now. Oh. But that's not where we started, right? That's no. not where we meet. So it's 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 really fun. But you know, it's hard, and so I give them credit. Yeah, for that. Well, you deserve a lot of credit oh. as well <laughs> because you are the person who are helping not only kids but parents kind of realize that about themselves and and provide and give them that courage. So thank you very much, thank Grace you. Brown. It's great to be here. Thank you for uh, being part of the supporting cast. Yeah. My- Thanks.